This is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 64 of the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I'll be talking to David J. Peterson. I was super excited for this interview because David is a master of conlang or constructed language. He has constructed languages for very, very big uh, Hollywood productions such as The Game of Thrones, The Witcher, um, HBO's uh, 100, I think it's called, and many, many more. So we have a fascinating discussion about what conlanging is, where to start constructing a language, um, how it works with fictional worlds, where the line is, and a whole heap more. A little different in terms of a topic today, but uh, I wanted to make sure I was bringing you all kinds of interesting things to help you create better books. But first to last week's question, which was, what self-publishing question have you not been able to find an answer to? I posted this on Instagram and got a ton of questions, so thank you very much for all of those. I'll try and whip through uh, some of the questions and answers. So the real Jack Adams said, "Depend uh, uh, which platform should I start on for self-publishing printed books? Great question. Uh, it really depends on your goals. For me personally, I use both Amazon's innate uh, KDP print, which will always ensure that your printed books are available on Amazon. And then I use Ingram Spark uh, for global distribution and distribution to all of the other many and varied places. Now, uh, one thing uh, just to note, another uh, questioner came in asking whether or not you can use Ingram Spark in the UK. You absolutely can. Uh, Ingram Spark is uh, global in terms of its reach and distribution. And I think there is a I believe this year a distribution uh, like printing warehouse was opened up in Australia, I want to say. Um, So I think, yeah, they've got a few distribution printing places across the world. I'm not entirely sure of the exact locations, um, but yes, hopefully that answers that question. Um, Next question from Kate Argus was, when going wide, is there such a thing as selling on too many marketplaces? So I don't think so. Obviously, you know, the wider you are, the more readers you can reach. There does come a point clearly when the sales are so small on um, very niche micro platforms that actually it doesn't really make it economical economical time-wise for you to go direct to each of those stores. So in that case, I use an aggregator like Draft2Digital. Um, but no, you know, ultimately that in the more locations that you can publish your book, the better it is for your readers. Um, another question was around formatting um, and if you don't have vellum uh, and you don't have a Mac, how can you format your books? Well, I mean, you have a couple of options. The first one is you go and pay somebody to do the formatting, which if you don't have vellum, 
more often than not is the easiest option but if you can't afford to pay somebody to do it then I recommend downloading one of the templates from places like Draft2Digital or Readsy or KDP has templates. You input all of your um, book, your information, your metadata, your front and back matter and then you load it back up and it will spit out the formats that you need for uploading. So those were a couple of questions and um, thank you to everybody who asked them. Um, and yeah, so this week's question is, what will you or how will you be spending the holiday period? Because our questions don't always have to be about writing, guys. They can be about human fun things. The book recommendation of the week this week is Monsters by Emerald Fennel. Now, Emerald uh, was one of the writers for Killing Eve. I don't know if you guys have seen Killing Eve but it is basically my favourite series ever. Uh, it is deeply, deeply fascinating. Um, the the main villain uh, antagonist, Villanelle, is just the most wonderful depiction of a villain I think I have ever had the pleasure of watching. And I might even go as far as to say she's my favourite villain. Anyway, this is not about Killing Eve. This is about uh, the book Monsters by Emerald Fennel. This is also equally warped. So I have only just started reading this book. I am probably, I don't even think I'm quite 100 pages in, but oh boy, is it warped and twisted. <laughs> it is delightfully evil. The, so it's, it's this strange concoction of a middle grade book absolutely for adults. It is not appropriate for kids in any way, shape or form. And so the two, the protagonist is like a 12 year old girl who is fascinated by all things gruesome, murder, darkness. And um, there's a murder in this tiny little village and the girl starts to investigate it with uh, this visitor friend um, who is equally twisted. I'm probably, they, the, both of the kids should probably, will probably end up being some kind of serial killer or Sherlock Holmes, one or the other. But um, yes, it is fantastic. It is very voicey, very unique voice. Um, and it's just an interesting, quirky, dark, morbid read. Uh, so yeah, if you, and, and it's the kind of humour where it's wildly inappropriate. And so, you know, if you laughed in public, people would probably judge you, but I'm not going to judge you because I have a dark sense of humour. So yes, uh, I highly recommend it. I will put links in the show notes. So in personal update then, um, the school, so obviously, you know, my son was off school because we were isolating and quarantining. And then uh, the school had told me that he could return on the 7th. So when I rocked up to school with him, I left him there dutifully on the 7th as requested, got back home, got a phone call uh, from the school, turn around, you are not meant to be back until the 14th. So I was mighty cross that the school had got it wrong because I had booked appointments and meetings and all kinds of stuff this week. So uh, anyway, we were back to quarantining and uh, so I did not get what I wanted done this week, but it's okay, it's fine. We're all alive, we're all healthy, you know, there's only so much complaining I can do. <laughs> 
I don't want to do any more complaining. So um, my wife kindly took a day off work this week, which helped me and I basically got to three o'clock and had smashed out so much work um, that I was absolutely fucked. <laughs> I couldn't carry on anyway. Um, but yeah, so I, I'm in a strange place where I've uh, done most of the freelance work and jobs that I needed to do before Christmas. So I'm now at the point where I could just stop if I wanted to. Um, I don't want to because I like working. Um, I will rest obviously for Christmas. Uh, and I've also got this weird thing where I, I don't know how to describe it. I guess it's like overwhelm, except it's not really overwhelm. I'll get to the point, Sasha, for God's sake. Right. Basically, I have too many open projects. So I'm working on a course, I'm working on side characters, I've got two book, two fiction books I'm editing. And having those four giant projects open at the same time means that instead of just getting one project done to completion, I'm flitting between all of them, forgetting where I was. It's taking me forever to get focused and narrow in and just like delivering on the project. So basically what I need to do, I think, is decide the order in which I'm going to tackle these projects and just take two off my plate and just get two done. Which isn't, it's really difficult when, because of the place each of these projects are in and me not having any silence or uninterrupted time during the day at the moment because of the homeschooling, I can't, I'm just unable to focus on anything. I'm like, normally I, I can and I just haven't been able to this last week. So anyway, yeah, so I'm rambling. Uh, and I don't know how much I'm even going to be able to get done before Christmas now, but I'm hoping I can at least get something done. I don't know, maybe I just need to quit until January and try again. No, I'm not going to do that. Who am I kidding? Of course, I'm not going to fucking do that. I need to get something done. So yes, and here endeth Sasha Black's ramble on where she is right now that you probably didn't need to hear. Oh, well, moving on very rapidly. Alrighty, Rebel of the Week this week is Ian Worrell. Ian says, in grade school at the end of every year for music class, we had to do a lip sync to a song. In grade four, when I was nine years old, while everyone else in the class did bands like Cool and The Gang and Chilliwack, a friend and I did Run to the Hills by Iron Maiden. It was the first time for a lot of them to be introduced to heavy metal music. It freaked some people out. And in the song, there's a line we gave gave him hell. A couple of girls in the back were, were laughing at the use of the word hell. This was back in 1982, where that could get you in big trouble. I love that you did that. I think that is absolutely awesome. And I can just imagine the absolute horror on your teacher's face. <laughs> oh, I do so love when people are naughty and uh, rebellious and yeah, do the, do the thing that's unexpected. Uh, if you would like to be a rebel of the week, please do send in your story. Uh, and really, please do, because we are running low on rebellions again. Uh, but it can be any kind of rebellion, big, small, or something in between. You can email your rebel story to rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com, or you can tweet me at rebelauthorpod. One new patron this week, a big, huge thank you to Chris Kane. Uh, Chris is the host of the Right Away podcast, and I was on said podcast a few weeks ago, so do go and check that out. Uh, 
But to all my patrons, old and new alike, you guys are fucking awesome. You help me to keep the podcast running and you give me squishy warm feelings, guys. Um, I have just posted a... Um, <laughs> What is it? It's a post, Sasha. It's a post. We posted a post uh, that uh, tells you some of the upcoming interviews and gives you the opportunity to ask questions if you would like to. Um, and I will be posting uh, something else extra for you before the end of the month. Uh, so yeah, if you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black and you can support from as little as $2 a month. All right, let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today I am joined by an extra special guest. I am joined by David Peterson. David is a language creator and author. He's created languages for shows like HBO's Game of Thrones, The CW's The 100, and Netflix's, whoop, that's hard to say, Netflix's The Witcher, as well as movies such as Marvel's Doctor Strange and Legendary's Dune. He is the author of The Art of Language Invention and the co-host of the YouTube series Langtime Studio. Welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Oh, I am so thrilled that you um, agreed to come on the show. It was one of my patrons, so thank you very much to Bear who asked and requested uh, for me to bring you on the show to talk about Conlangs. Um, and also because I have fallen into a well of like uh, researching and I have your book and I've been listening to the audiobook as well and I've been on your Langtime studio on YouTube. So I just, yeah, so fascinated to have found uh, like a new topic that I'm uh, so interested in. So thank you. Before we get into the meat of the interview, can you tell everyone a little bit more about you and your writing journey and specifically your conlang journey as well and how you got to where you are today? Oh boy. You want the long version or the short version? Mm, the interesting <laughs> version. Give me whichever one you like. <laughs> Uh, well, when I got to college, I went to college at, uh, at UC Berkeley in 1999. I was very interested in learning language. It's something that I'd had no interest in at all uh, until really the year prior. Um, when I became, I just went from no interest to very interest uh, overnight, literally. Uh, and so I started studying a bunch of languages, uh, as many as I could, to fill up my spare units. I went to college with the intent to be an English major, uh, with the ultimate goal of teaching English at the high school level and then writing fiction uh, during the downtime. Uh, but you know, with one major that leaves you with a bunch of empty credits, and so I thought, well, what better thing to do than to learn as many languages as possible? And there were so many on offer at Berkeley. So my first year, I took uh, two semesters of Arabic and a semester of Russian and a semester of Esperanto, which was a student-taught class. Uh, Esperanto is a language that was created in the 19th century. It was the first time I'd ever heard of anybody inventing a language. I'd never imagined that such a thing could be done before then. Um, the next semester, I took French, and then I also uh, took an introductory linguistics course. Uh, I was encouraged by my mother, and I fell in love with linguistics partly because it was really easy and very different compared to English. I mean, there were no essays to write, there were no <laughs> books to read. It was just 
all like work and it was on language so it felt like a lot of fun um so i added that as a, a second major as a fun major and it was during that first course that i created my first language uh it just kind of came out of nowhere i thought what if i made a language but instead of for international communication it did all of the things that i have enjoyed learning about in my languages and in linguistics and so there I started and I, I kept up with it while it was fun. And so it's been uh, uh, 20 years, I guess, and it's still fun. Um, and so I, I, you probably get asked this all the time, but how many languages can you speak? Uh, I mean, it, it's, it's, I mean, I, I studied many, I studied over 20, but you know, when it comes to speaking a language, there are some you're better at than others. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, English and Spanish are certainly my best. They're the two languages I grew up with. Uh, and then after that, mm, I guess French would be third, uh, and then German, and then maybe American Sign Language, and then probably Arabic, and then probably uh, Russian. And then after that, it's really not worth uh, not worth mentioning because when I study languages from books, I don't uh, develop the oral confidence and fluency that I do when I study it in a classroom. And so only the ones that I've studied in a, in a classroom do I feel very comfortable with. And the only other one I studied, I mean, aside from Esperanto, is, um, is uh, Middle Egyptian, uh, which was hieroglyphs. And for that one, we didn't actually do any speaking at all. Uh, it's only theoretical that we even know how the things are pronounced. So we, we just learned the grammar and writing. Mm -hmm. So do you also like to travel and spend any time in these countries when you're learning the languages or? Hmm. I, I certainly like having traveled. Uh, <laughs> traveling is, is, is not uh, a, a big, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of travel, but I love having been places or being at places. Uh, I, I would, what I would relish is teleporters like in Star Trek. <laughs> I think that would just lead to world peace overnight. I mean, you could just go anywhere, anywhere for dinner or to hang out and then come back. That would be wonderful. But, or, um, or perhaps a one world language, which I, I think uh, from the stuff that I've read so far, is that that's one of the goals of the um, like Esperanto? Um, yeah, it's, it's one of the goals of, well, it was anyway. Okay. It was at the end of the 19th century a goal of Esperanto to be like the world's default auxiliary language. I don't think any anybody takes that goal very seriously anymore and I don't think they should uh first of all Esperanto is is about as I don't know it's about as universal as the European Union it's kind of like saying um you know the EU represents all cultures and all people all over the world I mean nobody would seriously say that but they did in the 19th century with Esperanto thinking that this language that was only European was somehow universal um so there's no reason to say that anymore but at the same time I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's necessary, uh, and I think very quickly it will become uh, totally unnecessary to to even have something like English as the default, because as uh, as 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 online language translation gets better, mm. um, and as technology like you know AirPods get better, uh, pretty soon we'll be able to have the equivalent of a Babelfish, not perfect. I was just but, about to say the yeah. Babelfish. <laughs> right, but the type the type of thing where essentially you have a microphone that you're yeah. wearing on you, it can hear the language that somebody is speaking, 
and give you a translation. Those translations are going to get better and better. The audio technology is going to get better and better. Uh, and it's never going to be perfect. It's never going to be perfect, but it's going to get to a point where you can get the gist of it, mm. I think. And at that point, um, really learning another language will only be your choice or for convenience. Um, and I think that's going to be a, a good time. I think that at that point in time, we will stop seeing English being the default language that everybody feels like they have to learn. Mm-hmm. And um, I think Google already has like glasses that can do tra- translate some things uh, already. So yep. I'm sure the technology yep. is not far away um, for that. Uh, okay, so we've, we've sort of dived into some of this topic, um, but for anybody who hasn't heard of the term conlang uh, or constructed language, can you explain the term and, and what it means and the differences between conlangs and natural langs? And I'm sorry, I'm throwing like 5,000 questions at you, but also the, I guess the origins of conlang too. Yeah, so uh, a natural language is just one that has a natural origin uh, and was evolved and created unconsciously. Uh, whereas a constructed language is one that has a very specific origin and was created quite consciously. So something like um, English, right? It's, it's not like anybody invented it, or if they did it, it wasn't specifically. Or rather, it was just a bunch of people spoke different languages. Eventually, a bunch of people needed to communicate, and so they started trying their best. And little by little, incrementally over the centuries, uh, you know, the common patterns uh, that people used in speech begin to solidify and then change and kind of mold uh, over the centuries and produce a language that, you know, as we see it today. So that's a natural language. Um, a constructed language, though, is, is created, you know, quite specifically. Somebody or some group of people sit down and say, I'm going to create a new language for some reason, whether it's for political purposes or for fun or for philosophy. Uh, and they set about creating, um, you know, the grammar quite explicitly and the words quite explicitly. Once it has been created, it's not really different in any important way from another language. Uh, we see this with Esperanto, which has uh, native speakers, people that have spoken it from birth. Um, and they'll use it however they will use it. Um, they may invent new words. They may invent new idioms. And they can do that. Um, they can also decide. Uh, no, at some point in time, I only want to use the original words and not any of these new idioms. And they can do that and see if it's successful. Kind of like the Académie Française uh, says, there's not supposed to be any English terms used in French at all. And yet people still say le weekend. So, you know, um, that type of thing, once it becomes a language that people actually use, um, external forces have a very, a very limited uh, ability to alter the language. It really has to be something that the speaker community wants, whether consciously or unconsciously. Um, Anyway, uh, and then for those interested or who have heard of them, Creole languages are languages that are relatively young and usually emerge in context situations where people don't share a common language. Um, Those really aren't the same thing as constructed languages because even though they're new and even though it's people trying to communicate using different communication systems, um, they're not consciously sitting down and creating this Creole. They're not saying, okay, well, let's take some of the grammar from this language and some of the words from this language and try our best to communicate. They're just doing it. It's still quite an unconscious thing. And especially as Creoles evolve and become uh, the first language of, of many speakers, it's totally and completely unconscious. Um, and so really uh, calling something like a natural language versus a Creole versus a constructed language, 
all you're really doing is saying, this is how the thing started out. Um, and that might make it different in certain ways. But once it gets picked up, there's really no difference. It's just a language. And um, do you have an example of, um, I guess, the three, just to oh, put right. it into yeah. context? <laughs> so yeah, natural language, English, uh, uh, a very, uh, one of the biggest creoles that we have is Tokpisin, which is spoken over in uh, Papua New Guinea and, and all over that area, uh, which is a, an English lexifier creole language, uh, where you can look it up and a lot of the words come from English, but the grammar will be totally incomprehensible. Mm -hmm. um, and then an example of a constructed language would be something like uh, any of Tolkien's language. Tolkien's language is like uh, Quenya or Sindarin. Amazing. Okay, so let's say somebody is interested in creating their own conlang. Where on earth do they start? Well, of course, you can start anywhere. Lots of us, especially in the 20th century, began creating languages simply because we had the idea. Uh, so it wasn't necessarily the case that they even heard of somebody else constructing a language first. Uh, that has become less and less likely. Uh, I think since, since really Avatar um, and every year since then, uh, I think constructed languages have become more and more mainstream. So it's much rarer to find somebody now who has created a language who had never heard of anybody who'd, that had created a language before. Um, the way most of us learned was by finding other people online who created languages and joining a community, one or, or, or several others, especially in the late 90s and the early 2000s. Uh, and just, you know, learning piecemeal from others. Um, you can still do that. Uh, and there are a number of communities. There's the, the oldest community is still the Conlang Listserv, which is an email-based listserv. Uh, there's still the Zompus bulletin board, which is a bulletin board style thing. If you're familiar with early 2000s web tech, um, that there's also communities on Reddit, our conlangs, and a uh, community on Facebook, uh, uh, Constructed Languages Facebook group. Um, so there are communities everywhere. Uh, I also have written a book called The Art of Language Invention, which at least theoretically should take you from knowing nothing about linguistics or language creation to being able to create your own language. Uh, but even so, there's no um, there's no teacher like experience. Uh, so you really got to get in there um, and and give it a give it your best shot. Have some fun with it. Uh, your first language is probably not going to be your best language, uh, but uh, if you keep revising it, it may end up being. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I am um, just your, your book will be the book of the week as well. I am um, I'm about 60 odd pages in and I'm also listening to the audiobook at the same time because um, I getting the pronunciation is um, I'm always very nervous about that. And so um, I'm listening to it as well. You rated it as well, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's one of those few books where you kind of want both. You want to be yeah. able to look at it and hear it. <laughs> Absolutely. Kind of yeah. So I, I recommend if you are going to read the book, also buy uh, the audiobook or get yourself a, 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 an audible subscription or a find a way or whatever. And um, mm -hmm. yeah, grab the, the audiobook as well, because the, the two are really helping solidify everything. Because it is, it's a lot to take in. Uh, you know, I've been I've known about this for literally a week. And so it's, it is, it is a lot, but it is so interesting. So yeah, get both. Okay. So what are the overarching steps you should take to create a conlang? 
Well, the first thing and the most important thing that cannot be overlooked is that you have to uh, decide exactly what purpose this language is going to fulfill. So, uh, for example, um, if you if you don't make that decision, you don't make it very clear. Uh, you end up with something like the first language I ever created, where I was creating my first language. The so first I was doing it for fun. Um, but then periodically I would do things because I thought they were linguistically appropriate. Um, and then I also thought maybe there could be people who spoke this language and I was going to write literature in it. Um, and then I also thought I would make it really easy to learn so that other people could use it. Uh, and many of these goals are mutually exclusive. So, I mean, it's very hard to make something easy to learn while at the same time, throwing in all of these cool things you hear about in linguistics from, from other languages. And, and neither of those things is going to make it very realistic if you're gonna give it to a group of fictional speakers. Um, and then the very last test, the ultimate test, is that at a certain point, I didn't even like the language anymore because it was, I was doing things with it that I didn't enjoy, but I thought I should for one reason or another, either to make it easy to learn or to make it more linguistically accurate. And so ultimately when it failed that test, it was a language with absolutely no purpose uh, at all. Um, so it, it's very, very important to decide that at the outset. Is this gonna be a language that you want to use in your daily life, right? Just around the house, just because it'll be fun. Then it's gotta have a lot of vocabulary um, for things that you talk about in your daily life. And that's not gonna be for things like words for stone and spear and sword or, or whatever. It's probably gonna be things like, you know, text and meme and email. I mean, otherwise it's not gonna be very useful to you. Um, on the other hand, if you want to have a group of friends that are going to learn it, then you have to pay a lot of attention to what it is that your friends are going to enjoy because most of the time you'll just create the language and show it to your friends and they'll say, oh, that's neat, and then quickly try to change the subject. So you really need to put all of your eggs in that basket if you want somebody to learn it. Um, and then if you have a fictional people uh, that are supposed to uh, speak this language, then it needs to match uh, not just their culture, but the reality of those people. So in other words, if it's in a more or less realistic setting, then the language should be more or less like a natural language, uh, the type that is created and evolved unconsciously. So uh, the type of thing where you say like, you know, oh, well, these, uh, you know, these people uh, really believe in equality. And so they have different pronouns for everything. It's like, well, maybe that's not very realistic if we can't do that with our own languages on this world. Um, maybe, maybe, that's, maybe that doesn't make as much sense. On the other hand, if these are like differently realistic beings, so say for example, they live for thousands of years and they have perfect recall so it's not like us, where if you ask somebody to start remembering what their life was before five, they're like, eh. Um, then, you know, maybe their language could look very, very different. Uh, maybe it wouldn't show some of the hallmarks of regular evolution because they would just remember how it, how it always goes and always do it the same way every time. And furthermore, maybe they could engage in some active real world uh, language, you know, it, not just experimentation, but augmentation. Maybe they could change it successfully. 
but then at the same time, also remember what it's like living in your own speaker group. How many of the people that speak your language agree on things, both you know, politically, culturally, and linguistically? Um, how, like, how much success would you have getting together and say changing just your dialect of English? How much buy-in would you have? Would that be the same for your speakers? Uh, so that's the type of questions that you need to ask at the very outset. And then hopefully, if you have a clearer understanding of this goal, it will help you decide the, the it will help you make the rest of the decisions down the line. In other words, am I going to have a realistic phonology? Is it going to be human speakers? Um, is it going to be an ideal perfect grammar or more of a naturalistic grammar? Uh, this overarching goal will help you decide all of that moving forward. Amazing. I am. Yeah, I'm or, I'm already feeling more inspired. I was, uh, you know, as I've been reading, I'm like, oh, this is so cool. I really want to have a go, but just scared of fucking it up, basically. Um, okay. Yep. And, and speaking of fuck ups, what mistakes mm -hmm. do new and newer conlangers make? Uh, what do they struggle with most? And, and how can they actually overcome those obstacles? Uh, well, aside from, you know, not having a, a very clear goal and not adhering to that goal uh, as you move on, uh, there are a number of mistakes that conlangers made be, make for one of, for the reason basically that they are doing things that they think languages must do, uh, either because that's how their own language does it, or that's something that they've read in a linguistics book. And that is, it's rarely the case. Uh, that, that is so. Uh, there are very, very few uh, detail, I guess, detail level phenomena that are true for all languages. Like, if you if you ask for all the languages on Earth, what are some commonalities? They're really basic. Like, um, there is generally going to be a distinction between nouns and verbs. Um, but I mean, once you get into something like, well, they probably all have a past and a present tense. No, <laughs> not so. I mean, any of those types of questions where you say, well, this verb probably does this. No, probably not. It's like, well, everybody probably has a verb for eat. No. <laughs> uh, some, in fact, have uh, not only different words for eat, but some sort of more basic word that just means ingest. And it works for both eating and drinking. And they don't have a specific word. Um, so every single one of those questions, every single one of those questions, for the most part, uh, the answer is there is no way that it must be done. And so for that reason, it's up to the language creator to decide, well, this is how I want to do it. The more times you make that decision and it looks like your native language, then it's kind of like the less creative input there was, I guess. Um, so something that helps is studying many different languages from many different parts of the world that aren't related to one another, but not studying them with an eye to learning them. Rather, you instead study them to figure out what type of grammatical phenomena they have. Um, you know, just even doing something like, you, you know how English's verbs work. So take a look at Japanese and just look at how its verbs work. Don't try to learn it just look at their verbal system and see how different it is. 
and know that this is just, you know, I mean, Japanese is a, a huge, gigantic language. It can say anything that English can. And yet its verbs are this way, which are so different from English. And then know that those are just two languages. Hop around the planet and you'll see there are verb systems that were totally different from English and Japanese, and then keep going, right? And so then when you can sit down and do your language, it's not a, uh, it's not a question of, okay, what is my future and past and present tense gonna be? It's going to be a question of, do I even want tense in this language? If I do, which tenses? And then how are they going to be realized? Suffixes, two different words, uh, the absence of something, a prefix, a combination of all these things. Uh, so that's, I think the, that's, one of, that's one of the biggest pitfalls, thinking that language must be a certain way. I have to say that deeply appeals to my rebellious nature. I have a bit of a habit of breaking rules. And uh, yeah, so that uh, I, I am even more excited now knowing that I don't have to abide by any particular um, rule. Yeah. Okay, so I mentioned at the start, um, I've only been uh, aware of Conlangs even for a couple of weeks, uh, but in those couple of weeks, I've watched your TED Talk, I've watched um, Amazon documentaries on this, I've watched your uh, uh, YouTube videos, on and on and on. But I'm not the best with English grammar. Um, I mm -hmm. pay a very handsome sum to an editor to edit my... <laughs> my poor commas and such like uh, in my own novels. So, um, and it, it's the grammar side of it that really um, gives me almost anxiety to even try this and get, you know, and I know you said you can't really mm. get it wrong because you're deciding, you're creating, you're, you're, you are determining the rules. But for those people who don't, don't even know where to begin with the grammar for a constructed language, what advice would you have to them? Uh, there are a number of different things there. The word grammar is, uh, has many different arenas nowadays. So first of all, uh, you should know that you are perfect with English grammar because grammar as we understand it, as linguists understand it, is what exists in your head. So the very fact that we can have this conversation means that you are absolutely perfect in English grammar. Uh, we have different grammars, uh, of course, because no two people have exactly the same grammar of a language in their head. Like not even, you know, me and my sister or me and my mother, who both grew up speaking English in roughly the same area, had very similar lives, and yet our grammars are slightly different. Uh, and then, of course, uh, our two grammars will be even more different because, of course, we grew up in two very different regions, um, not just in terms of accent, but in terms of grammar. Like, you know, one of the things that... <laughs> Uh, this is this is an aside, but I hate articles, um, words like the and a. Uh, I hate learning languages that have them, and I hate creating languages that have them because articles, even though they're so simple, they never, ever, ever work the same. Not even like in two similar languages, not even in the same language. So, for example, if uh, here in America I have an injury, I go to the hospital, whereas in England, you go... To A&A? What would you say? Well, no, but like, how would you say if you were going, if you needed a hospital, you would say, I went to? The hospital? I, I'm not, uh, the doctors? Really? Well, yeah. You, you say you go to the hospital? 
Uh, well, I, I went to the hospital, or I have to go to the hospital, or... So you don't say I go to hospital? No, but that's possibly because I'm down south. So up north, uh, if I had a northern yeah. accident, a- accent, possibly like Yorkshire or Liverpool, I'm not. And oh my God, okay. forgive me for any northern speakers if I'm, I'm, you know, quoting this incorrectly. But as a southerner, I would definitely say I went to the hospital. Well, how about this? Uh, what about a university? Uh, I went to university, but you go to college, right? <laughs> The college. No, the college or the university or a college, a university. I went to a university. Not oh, no, I went, I to, went university. to university. So, <laughs> so look at that. Now we have three different grammars of English. I have to use articles for both. You use an article for hospital, but not for university. And the northern dialect uses no articles for either. And this is all the same language. The same language. Yeah. Like that is absurd. Articles are like this in every language, like uh, German, French, uh, Spanish. It's a mess. There is no way where you will always say, well, yeah, you're always going to use the equivalent for the word for the there. It's never true. That's why I love languages without articles like, you know, Russian, uh, Latin. Most of my languages don't have articles because I don't even want to think about it. Um, Anyway, uh, what a mess. Anyway, so grammar uh, is just how you speak. Uh, And so it will it will be correct. Though, of course, all of us make mistakes sometimes, like um, simple stuff, like subject-verb agreement. We actually make mistakes like that all the time. Probably do it two or three times a day. Uh, It doesn't mean you don't know how to do it. It's just a mistake sometimes. So then there is another notion of grammar. And this notion of grammar uh, is a bit antiquated, but it has to do with a standard, a supposed standard of language, especially uh, when it comes to writing. Mm-hmm. So uh, with writing, we have punctuation, right? And there are supposedly rules on how the punctuation is supposed to be used. Um, and then you can do it correctly or incorrectly. But of course, all that punctuation is, is a really, really poor, exceedingly poor method of trying to convey intonation, which we have no way of otherwise conveying. Because, uh, I mean, you'll notice there is no punctuation in speech, and yet we know where sentences end. We know where there are pauses. It's all because of the intonation and the spacing. And punctuation is kind of a way to try to capture that using, like, four marks. It's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. And, of course, when they came up with this standard, it reflected a very specific type of speech, which probably, frankly, does not exist anymore. It's the way that somebody spoke in one place, probably in England, um, at some century. And so they said, well, naturally, of course, you always put a comma here because you would if a comma meant that and you spoke that way. But now, centuries later, where we have lots of different dialects, including in England, where you don't speak the same as you did in 1600, um, it doesn't necessarily make as much sense. And then, of course, there were different standards of punctuation. So then there, you have like seven different rule sets kind of juggling in your head when it comes to deciding where should I put a comma? And then, of course, your editor or publisher will have their own set of standards. And that's, of course, made different from other publishers. Uh, if you've ever had that thing where you're working with two different publishers and like, well, they, this publisher always does it this way. Well, this one does it a totally different way. And it's not for any good reason. It's just because. So that type of grammar doesn't mean anything. It's kind of like formal etiquette. So like 
knowing which fork goes where doesn't mean you don't know how to use a fork or eat, right? It's, and it doesn't also necessarily mean that you can't be polite in the way that you eat. It's just that there is a subset of rules that exist for formal etiquette. Uh, and sometimes you follow those rules and sometimes you don't. Now, when it comes to the actual grammar of your conlang, you're creating the grammar in your head. You're not creating the, the formal one. You can, but that will necessarily come second when you decide that your culture is going to have a group of speakers who decide that everybody's speaking the wrong way. And so then they create their own set of grammar rules, which may look funky, but you're not bothering yourself with that. You're bothering yourself with what is correct. So it's like, if you think about something in English, like, uh, I don't know, like, uh, I, I got me a bucket down at the store. That may be improper grammar, but it works. On the other hand, if I were to say, you know, uh, I me a uh, the store bucket got down, that that doesn't work. And, and And that doesn't work for any English speaker. It makes absolutely no sense, even though it's using English words, right? That's the type of grammatical error that you will be trying to avoid when you're creating the grammar of your language. And for that, it's, it's merely a matter of learning it and remembering. So uh, just for a, a quick example, um, let's see. Uh, in English, you could say, um, uh, me and him went out to eat. And it's considered non-standard, but everybody understands it. And it's essentially a part of the grammar. Uh, there are languages where literally you couldn't say that, where nobody would say that under any circumstances, just because that's the way the internal grammar of that language works. That may be your language. You may create a language where a, a native speaker would never do that under any circumstances because it makes no sense to them. Um, and so if you were an English speaker, you might accidentally do that following your English internal grammar, and then that would be wrong based on the rules that you created. Um, there was a wonderful example that uh, somebody who spoke uh, English and Spanish natively, they were raising their, their, their children, and they were raising them bilingually, and they made errors that no Spanish speaker would ever make based on English grammar. And so uh, uh, if you wanted to say, who did you talk to, for example, in Spanish, you would say, con quien hablaste, con, which is with, quien, and that's who hablaste, then uh, you spoke. In English, you could say, you could say, with whom did you speak, of course, you could always say that, but more likely is, who did you talk to, who did you talk with, and that's fine. It's considered improper, but it's totally 100% acceptable English grammar. Apparently, one day, this person's daughter came to her and said, ¿Quién hablaste con? <laughs> she was just like, oh my goodness gracious. That's not non-standard Spanish. It's not an error a Spanish speaker would ever make. It simply cannot happen. It's something that only happened because uh, she spoke English, and you can do both things in English, and she thought, well, if you can do both things in English, you can probably do the, the, that also in Spanish. But absolutely, you cannot. Um, However, interesting note, if there were a group of people being raised in English and Spanish and they all lived together and they all started doing this, eventually you would be able to do that in their version of Spanish. And it would be considered 
okay grammar because they can do it. See? So I find this so fascinating. My dad has a second family. My dad is like speaks about five different languages. I, I'm obscenely jealous because he grew up in many different places and I am an ignorant English person who can basically speak English and just a bit of pidgin other languages. But anyway, his second family are all bilingual. So he lives in the Netherlands now. So he speaks fluent Dutch after having been there for quite some time. And his children speak both Dutch and English. And growing up, they would speak a kind of like a, a Danglish, uh, you know, so some of their words would yeah. end with English endings or, you know, start with English words and end in Dutch. And obviously because my dad was bilingual and their mother was bilingual and they all, they all knew what they were saying, but for any of the <laughs> other people around them, it was, you know, just absolute gobbledygook. I mean, English is very, I mean, Dutch is very similar to English. So, you know, yeah. I suspect most people could work it out, but for all intents and purposes, they were speaking gobbledygook. But, um, yeah, I find it, I, 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 I used to find it fascinating watching them and picking up like the odd bit and being like, I'm pretty sure that's not, um, uh, the words, but yes. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say within that community then that was fine. Right. As yeah. soon as they get outside to other Dutch speakers, they probably wouldn't understand. Exactly. But if there were tons of people in that community, right, eventually that just becomes okay. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and every, every language is, is, it evolves. I mean, you only have to look at um, English and, you know, texting and, and lol and all of the other bloody new words that uh, technology has given us are now actually in the dictionary. And lest we speak of Shakespeare, who basically created a load of words. Um, yep. Okay, so a lot of my listeners will be writers and writers of fiction. So how can a conlang add value or enhance a story or fictional world? But I suppose deeper than that, like where is the line? How much needs to be created for, for a story? Um, and how far should they go uh, in order to create this for their novel? It really depends on the type of book that you're, that you're writing, uh, how appropriate it is. Uh, at the very least, I, I would ask all writers to do this, consider, consider language in your world. And this is whether you're writing um, fantasy, sci-fi, or even uh, just something set in our own world. Um, just consider it. Consider language. Uh, consider language in your setting. For example, if you were setting something um, where I grow up here in Orange County, and again, this is like super English area, uh, it would be pretty unrealistic if all of the characters that you happened across uh, were all 100% English speakers and they all had like, you know, traditional English um, first names and surnames. Uh, rather, it should be like 30% should be like that. 30% should probably have uh, Spanish names and surnames and 30% should have Vietnamese uh, uh, first names and surnames. And then with, with the rest, you know, kind of a, a mix of probably uh, uh, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, and, uh, and from Tagalog in that order. Um, and then even more, there should be tons of people that are mixed uh, from, from these main cultures. Uh, and, and furthermore, a lot of people in this area, whatever language they grew up with, will have very either passive fluency or familiarity with a lot of Spanish terminology and some Vietnamese terminology. 
Um, and that may not, you know, play into the main plot of your of your novel, but it's the type of thing that will just come up in conversation, right? It's also the type of thing where if you're wandering around the area uh, and you're you're looking at signs, yeah, you should come across some signs that are just in Vietnamese or signs that are just in Korean, uh, and that's for this area, right? So then, looking at your area, if it's somewhere in the real world, really. Uh, really, I, you don't necessarily need to spend time there, but but do some research. Go onto Google Maps. This is the best part, and do the street view, and just go around and take a look at the signage. You know how much of it is in one language, how much of it is in another language. That'll give you an idea of what the makeup of the area is. Um, and then when you're creating your own world, um, the thing that I I really want to caution against is saying here is the big kingdom where everybody speaks one language that I'm going to represent as English. And here is the smaller other one over here that may be bad guys or noble savages, and they speak the only other language on this planet, and that's it. <laughs> There's just the two languages. Um, there is going to be a lot more diversity in your world. And that doesn't mean that you have to sit there and create 6,000 languages. What it means is that you should acknowledge it, that there are going to be, if there's a big metropolis, there's probably going to be lots of different people from lots of different areas that have lots of different naming traditions and cultures uh, and backgrounds. Uh, if you're right in a very small little town that's up in the mountains, yeah, maybe every single person knows every single other person there and they all have the same background and upbringing. Sure. Just, you know, try to think about at least what we have seen in our world, especially if you have humans and you know the way that humans do human stuff. Uh, try to make it reflect that that diversity that you see. Um, when it comes to having language as a crucial plot point um, in your novel, uh, and, and this is especially for a novel, not for like a television show or a movie, it, it nevertheless remains the case that your novel is going to be primarily written in one language um, for your for your readers. So if you're an English speaker, it's going to be written in English. And then if it gets translated into some other language, that English is going to be translated into one other specific language. It's, you know, the conceit of the language of narration, whatever language is you know, really being spoken. Um, so then uh, the question uh, becomes, how is language going to play a role and how important is it going to be? Um, if, if you just want it there because you want people to get the sense of the language, but you don't want them to lose the story. Uh, I, I really advocate doing exactly what uh, George R. R. Martin did in the Song of Ice and Fire. Um, when it wasn't important, he would just narrate it. In other words, when he didn't want people speaking, he would just narrate it. When he did want people speaking and he wanted you to get a sense of what the language sound like, sounded like, he did it. He just did the full line in the language and then provided you with an immediate translation. Um, and I think that is really the best of both worlds. If you want to dig into the language, you can. If you want to read it and get the sound of it, you can. But you're not punishing your readers for not speaking this language that you just created. Because like he very could well, he very well could have not translated anything and put an appendix in the back. Uh, with, you know, a grammar appendix. So it's like you come to this huge long line, and you're like, okay, go to the back of the book, figure out all the words, figure out the grammar, and go back and figure out what it says. But but he's not doing that. Um, 
however, you can use that to your advantage. Uh, and when I do, uh, when I run D&D games, I do the same thing. If I feel like uh, my players shouldn't understand something, or if I don't want my readers to understand something, and I want to give them the sense that they're at a place where the character doesn't understand what's going on, absolutely. Put like a whole chunk of text in the target language. In fact, put it in a script that they can't even read. And to give them the sense of what a character feels like being in a place where nobody speaks their language, right? That'll give you the sense of it. Um, but then if you do that, I think it, you have to expect that your readers are not gonna be able to understand it. You should not expect them to go and figure this out on their own and translate. Um, now, uh, for some practical advice, if you just want this, if you just wanna represent the languages or make reference to them, Languages come in families. So like English isn't just English. English is related uh, very closely to uh, German and Swedish and Danish and, Isla and Icelandic, right? Those languages all form kind of a, a speaker uh, in Dutch, a speaker continuum. And it's closely related to some of those more than others. So it's more closely related to Dutch and German than it is to Icelandic. Um, but then English is also distantly related to French and Spanish and has borrowings from, a lot of borrowings from French and also Latin. It's also distantly related to Russian. None of those languages are related to uh, Japanese or Korean um, or Turkish, right? Uh, and so that's kind of the way languages work in our world. And so if you have humans that spread around, it's probably gonna be the same thing. So you might have uh, people from this area and there might be people from a very close area that speak a language that's different, but somewhat related. You can make reference to that. You can actually set up a little family tree of languages the way you can with people. Um, and without creating those languages, you can simply make reference to it. You can make reference to the fact that like there could be even two closely related languages like Dutch and German, where somebody is speaking and you say like they kind of get the gist of it, right? Without having to create those languages. Uh, for names and place names and character names, you can create something called a naming language. And if you get the hang of these, you can bang out at like four or five of these in a weekend. A naming language isn't a full language. Um, and there's a little essay uh, about how to do this uh, that maybe I can send you the link to and you can put up. Um, but a naming language is this, it's just there to give you names of people and places. Uh, and it, it, uh, the essay guides you through how to come up with a consistent sound system and then how to come up with some basic words and how to form names, both of towns and of people. So like you see like a, a lot of, uh, especially last names have things like Peterson, right? Um, and then Thompson, uh, Samson, so on. Uh, there are lots of names like that throughout languages. And sometimes it'll actually be son or daughter. In Icelandic, you have both. You have like, uh, uh, what's a good, um, uh Nielsen uh because Niles saga yeah so Nielsen but oh Niles daughter uh could be the same uh you could have that in your language or not um your your last name black a lot of uh last names come from very common qualities so you have you have black as a as a last name you have green you have good um and then also combinations so like goodman is a last name pretty obvious where that comes from you can do the same thing with a naming language and just create these little bits of language 
um, with some very elementary grammar uh, decisions. Decisions like, does the adjective come first or second? That's it, right? Um, and then here are some adjectives, here are some nouns, put them together and suddenly you have consistent naming traditions for a whole group of people. Um, and like, again, once you get good at this, you can do, you can do one in like a few hours. Um, if you want to go beyond that, of course, yeah, there's a whole bunch of resources for creating your own language. If you feel like that's not for you, you can hire a, a language creator and work with them. There's a, a website called jobs.conlang.org where you can go and post a job and work with a language creator and tell them, this is what I want, this is how many languages I want, and this is approximately what I want them to sound or feel like. And they'll work with you to create those languages um, and probably create a bunch of names for you too. Anyway, a lot of options out there for you. And I really encourage authors to do this, especially science fiction and fantasy authors, mm -hmm. because uh, for in terms of, think, if you think about how many science fiction and fantasy books there are per year, compared to how many science fiction and fantasy television shows there are, it would be so much easier for a language creator to get a job uh, for a book than it would be for a television show or movie. And yet at the same time, TV shows and movies are almost allergic to original content. They like to adapt stuff. So if you have a book that gets adapted, that could be, first of all, a bunch of money for you, but also another job for uh, your language creator who could now work on a show where there's going to be a lot more dialogue. Anyway, that's my pitch. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are so many things I uh, to, to come back on. First of all, um, I completely agree. Um, I'd never actually thought about the diversity of language um, in terms of representation, but I think that's so true. And also true of all the types of diversity. So, you know, like um, sexuality or disability. Right. And I find that um, so often, writers just have characters who are all the same as them. And, and I don't mean that as, you know, like a, you're not, a, not a self insert, so to speak, but just characters who are, you know, of, of a similar background, whereas that's just mm -hmm. not realistic anymore. And, you know, come on, let's do something for, uh, you know, to make, you know, our stories more realistic. Um, Okay, so if you could only have one of your conlangs survive you long into the future, and I suspect many of them are going to survive you, but if you could only have one, which one would you want and why? And would we be able to hear perhaps a line or two from that conlang? Oh, <laughs> I don't know if I can just speak anything off the top of my head. I'm not fluent in any of them. I can't speak them. I'll, I'll, I'll or give a, it a word? A word, perhaps? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I can give you a shot with some of them. Honestly, um, I care very little about what people think of me after I'm dead. <laughs> but, um, but uh, like, I don't know. I, I, so I, I, I know you asked this question earlier and I did think about it. Uh, and it's kind of a strange question for me. I have a favorite language. Like when people ask me what my favorite language is that I've created specifically, mm -hmm. I have an answer for that, and it's a Raytheon. Uh, I absolutely love the language, and I, I, I think it's uh, a lot of fun to speak, and I think it's a lot of fun to use, and I, I have so much fun creating it. But, um, but I guess if I wanted something to survive me, it would be the one that I'm most proud of, and I don't think it's that one. Like, I don't think that's my best one. Um, but then I, I come back to the question of what is my best one, and all I do is I look at every language I've created, and I just see a ton of flaws. 
<laughs> you know, mistakes I, ma I made everywhere in every single language I've ever done. So it's like, I don't know, I'm like, eh, the one that survives me is hopefully the one you enjoy and you can overlook the flaws. I don't know. <laughs> you know what? I, 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 I think I would be more interested in just in kind of, uh, rather than any specific language surviving and people using it or anything like that, just kind of, um, uh, the, the oeuvre surviving as a whole so that people could look at different bits of it. Because honestly, that's what I have the most fun with. It's, it's not like, I, I do have a, a favorite language, like the Hawaiian language, I love it. But if you were to ask me which one language would I want to exist like a natural language uh, with all the others going away, it's like, I wouldn't want that. <laughs> I, I like them all being there. I like the idea of studying all of them. It, I wouldn't ever want to choose one. It's just no fun for me <laughs> because then I would immediately start thinking about my goodness. Well, I've, I've never seriously studied Mongolian and I haven't. A friend of mine went to the Peace Corps, with the Peace Corps to Mongolia for three years and he yeah, speaks it fluently. And there's an amazing metal band now that uh, is from Mongolia and, and, and sings in Mongolian exclusively. And it's like, I'm missing out. So how could I how could I just be with Hawaiian for the rest of my life and never study Mongolian? It would just hurt me so much. So yeah, sorry, I can't do it. <laughs> you're going to rebel against the question no it's fine yeah. um it, it's really i mean it's the same question it's that's such a creative person's response though because it's like asking me which one of my books i want to survive me well all of them obviously um, your children <laughs> i know i know and um, the the con line that you mentioned though um it could we yeah, have a word yeah. or two uh, what are some words in that one it's been a long time since i've used that one regularly uh Okay, uh, so let's see. would be the auxiliary that you use with intransitive verbs. So I just need an intransitive verb, uh, and then is that Come on, intransitive verb. I can remember a single intransitive verb in this language. I must be able to. Uh, that's no, that won't work. Maybe. Maybe Elu is sleep. It might not be, but I hope it is. I, it might be. But let's pretend that Elu is a word for sleep. Then I would say, That's it. And that's the, um, I don't know, like the, the man, but specifically an Arathian man is sleeping. Hopefully. I love it. I love it. Also, I am so unbelievably deeply impressed that you can just uh, pull that out of your brain. I'm like in awe of you. Okay, this is the Rebel Author Podcast. This is always my favorite question. Uh, tell us about a time you unleashed your inner rebel. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that cackle. That means there's a good story coming. <laughs> Oh gosh, there's just there's just so many. I uh, well, I I have so many. So let me let me tell you this story. So uh, the the hundred on the CW, the language I created for the hundred is called Trigetasign, and what it is, it's a theoretical future version of the English language, uh, given the unique sci-fi history of the show The Hundred, which takes place 150 years from now. 
um, and some other elements and also basic sound changes. So every single word from English, uh, uh, I'm sorry, every single word in Trigeta slang comes from English. Um, so this was uh, what we call an a posteriori project. Um, so the, the words weren't original, the grammar wasn't original. What was original was the sound changes that I applied and the grammatical and semantic changes I supplied I, I, to create a new future language from English. So um, consequently, there are a lot of words uh, that have changed meaning over the centuries. So like the word for tunnel now is uh, subway, uh, which comes from subway, uh, and it's spoken a little differently. Uh, and sometimes you can like understand uh, some of what's being said. So, for example, uh, maybe you mean, uh, sorry, maybe you mean, maybe you mean a hit it shut up. Maybe you mean a hit shut up, not a time, which means uh, may we meet again. So, so maybe from maybe you me from you and me na comes from gonna, so it's a future. Uh, hit is just hit, and chora is from each other. And then up, so hit up. That's All right, and then not a and not a time, right? So maybe you need me to hit shut up, not a time. Um, okay, so a few seasons back, um, we needed a word for idiot or somebody that was really stupid, and and I was communicating with the script coordinator at the time, and and this was in I want to say. Uh, May or June of 2016. Um, and so I said, uh, you know, uh, I, I would love to, I would love to do Trump voter, uh, Trump voter <laughs> as somebody who's an idiot, but it's not going to be relevant by the time, uh, by the time of this show. Because I thought back in June of 2016, obviously Trump was going to lose in a landslide. Um, and so consequently, he wouldn't be relevant 150 years from now. Nobody would remember. And so he, he wouldn't, you know, Trump photo wouldn't mean anything. And so I skipped that. Then of course, November, 2016 happens. <laughs> I was like, damn, <laughs> I, I, I really should have done that. But I really absolutely in my heart of heart believed there was absolutely no way he could win. So it just wouldn't be relevant. But nevertheless, I, uh, I, I allowed that to, to come back. So that was, so I needed to translate at some point in time in a future season, um, that is an outrageous lie or something like that. And so it became, uh, and Trump and load. So load was lie and Trump and is like egregious. And then um, it, uh, I was able to bring it back in the episode that aired two days ago. There, there was a character who's on there and he's making an announcement about things, uh, you know, the, the previous leader. And one of the lines he says is, you have been lied to, uh, which comes out as, y'all don't get Trump up, <laughs> because the word for lie is now Trump. That is absolutely spectacular. I love that. Oh. oh. And I'm going to tell you one more. This is totally different, but one more, one more, because this was this was again in the summer of 2016. I was doing an interview for it was I think it was a British publication, um, and uh, they asked me to translate all of the current like American uh, presidential candidate slogans uh, into Dothraki. 
so it was uh, at that time it was Hillary Clinton's, uh, Jeb Bush's, uh, Trump's, and there. Uh, I think it was. Uh, I think Bernie Sanders was there as well. So I, I translated all those, but but yeah, translating "Make America Great Again" into Dothraki, there was no way I was going to do that. It just felt so disgusting. Um, so I translated it as "Make America Burn Again." And they published it. <laughs> no, did you actually? <laughs> yes, I did. It's still there. It's still up there. And everybody oh who had studied Dothraki, they saw that and they knew it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I absolutely love it. That That is a true rebellion. And also, I love that only certain people are able to see the, the rebellion as well. That kind of makes it even more devious. I love it. <laughs> um, thank you. Thank you so much for your time today. Will you tell listeners where they can find out more about you and obviously your books and audiobooks and where they possibly can hear your conlangs? Sure. So um, my main website is languageinvention.com and that'll take you to a whole bunch of different places. Uh, on social media, I hang out most on, uh, on uh, Twitter where I'm at Daedalus, D-E-D-A-L-V-S. Uh, it's like it would be in Latin if there was no A-E in it. Um, and then uh, if you just want to see pictures of my darling cats, then you can follow me on uh, on Instagram, where I'm at Athavrazar, A-T-H-D-A-V-R-A-Z-A-R, because somebody took my username and is just camping it. Mm -hmm. has been for years makes me so mad um anyway um and then um you uh if you want to see what i'm doing lately i am creating a language uh two hours a week with a friend a very good friend uh, jesse sams with whom i created a language for a freeform show called motherland fort salem uh we're creating it uh two hours a week from 2 to 4 p.m pacific time on youtube at, at uh, Langtime Studio. So if you go to langtimestudio.com, it'll forward you there. Uh, and every Thursday, 2 to 4 p.m., you can see us creating a language. We just had our 24th episode, and we are getting very close to finishing the grammar. Uh, um, once we're all done with this one, we're going to take a short break and then start another one. So, yeah. And then we speak them all the time there. <laughs> yeah, I um I started watching the very first episode, I think yesterday, but um I'm I'm doing it in short bites and I think I'm up to the bit where yeah. you've got you're showing rabbit pictures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um so thank you very much for uh, joining me today. I, I am still deeply fascinated and yeah, I feel uh, motivated and also um like I'm not shit at grammar anymore. So thank you very much for that. Um, right also, thank you to all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, then you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. And thank you also to everybody listening. I'm Sasha Black. You are listening to David Peterson. And this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Next week, I have a 
fascinating guest. I am joined by Adam Leap. He is the inventor and founder of Astro House. And Astro House created a piece of tech that you may have heard of. It's called the Free Write. Um, it's a modern version of the um, Neo 2000. Lots of people have been talking about it, like an old school typewriter with no Wi-Fi, uh, but it's digital and you can like upload all your um, writing. Well, they have created a new uh, version of that. And we have a discussion about not only distraction and distraction-free writing, but also entrepreneurship and business and what it means to be a business person today. So I look forward to sharing that with you next week. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.